The scripture reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 3, verses because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given, or if a law had been given that could give right life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The word of the Lord. So I want to tell you about this uh, after I, I retire from pastor dream that I am preparing for. Um, so I have a goal in mind, and I have been working really, really hard to get to that goal. Uh, I want to drive in the Indianapolis 500. I, I have this, this incredible dream. I mean, think about this. 500 miles in front of close to 300,000 people at speeds in excess of 200 miles an hour for three to five hours. Sounds like a blast in my mind. And I've been training, and I want to show you all my car. Here's what I've been working on towards my goal, getting to race in the Indianapolis 500. Henry White has been very kind to me each week, letting me come over and bug him to borrow his bike. And, and you know, I've been training a lot I mean, I can get going pretty fast down Longview Street. Some of you have been, been to my house. You know the street I live on. It is one long stretch. And let me tell you, I am flying down that street on this bike. I'm putting in the hours. I am getting in shape. I am ready for the Indianapolis 500 on this bike. You all look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> yes. If I were to try to race in the Indianapolis 500 with this bike, I would run into some problems, wouldn't I? First of all, I don't think I could ride this bike for 500 miles. As hard as I try, I don't think this bike could make it 500 miles. And I also, I I mean, I get pretty fast, but I doubt I'm getting over 200 miles an hour on this bike. And I might try hard. I mean, I might put in all my effort and if I get around maybe a lap or two, so each lap is like two and a half miles, so, so maybe I get around a lap or two, and I expend all the effort in the world, am I going to be successful? No. 
I am going to fail spectacularly. And I might even get myself hurt in the process. Why? Because this bike was not designed to race in the Indianapolis 500. The purpose of this bike is not to race. It has some purpose altogether different. And this is how you and I are with our performance in life. I'm going to put this bike back here, safe and sound for Henry. He promised that I would take care of it, or I promised to him I would take care of it. You and I, in the way that we can live our lives, the same way, in the way that we try to use performance in order to find identity and blessing and favor and worth, we will expend a ton of energy through our attempts at success, whether it's with relationships, whether it's our own moral efforts, over and over and over again, we expend effort in order to find this sense of identity, this sense of self-worth, in order to hope that we would get blessing and favor. And if we're religious, in order to be counted righteous or to be found good in the sight of God, And look, we're internally driven by this, but our culture throws gas on the fire. Over and over and over again, we're bombarded by messages that our sense of identity and worth can be found in our performance. Image, intelligence, influence, success, wealth, power, status. These are like shiny tokens that our culture hands out and says, hey, if you have these, you have worth. You have identity, you have blessing, you have favor. And then our culture also has these preferred status, preferred gender, preferred race, preferred socioeconomic class. And over and over again, between these preferred status and this performance, what do we have? Haves and have-nots. Those who can cut it and those who can't. And here's what's scary, here's what's sad. We do the exact same thing in the church. In the church, we have these shiny tokens that we think will give us worth and give us value. Image, intelligence, influence, success, maybe wealth, maybe a preferred gender, preferred race, preferred status. And what we end up doing with our preferred status and our performance is we start creating these value hierarchies in the church. We start creating haves and have-nots in the church. This is what happens when we live by performance. And then we do this with God, too. We tell ourselves, hey, if I can just do enough, that'll give me worth in the eyes of God. It'll make me righteous. It'll give me his blessing. Or we do this in reverse. You know, we we get tired of performing, and so what we do is we start just lowering the standard, and we start to sentimentalize God and his love We start to minimize sin and righteousness and goodness. And we say, oh, God just accepts me the way that I am. And so sin isn't that big a deal. God validates my own sense of success. He's baptizing my agenda. He's for whatever whatever thing that I want to chase after in life. And all the while, we minimize holiness. We minimize goodness. We minimize truth. This is what happens when we try to perform. On and on we go 
like a dude trying to ride a bike in the Indianapolis 500, using our performance as a means for worth and for blessing, for favor, for righteousness, for salvation, for deep, meaningful relationships, expending a ton of effort and doing damage to ourselves and others in the process. Here is the good news for us this morning, church. Our performance was never meant to be the means by which we find our identity and our worth and favor and blessing and righteousness and salvation. More specifically, God's law was never meant to be the means by which we find our identity and favor and blessing and righteousness and salvation. Because our performance and even the law itself are far, far too insufficient for the task. But the good news of the gospel is that when we properly understand the law, it drives us to who is sufficient for the task. It drives us to the true source of worth and identity and blessing and favor and righteousness and salvation. And that's what I want to look at this morning from our text, is what is the purpose of the law? Because when we stop misusing the law, when we stop misusing performance and effort, we can actually be set free to walk in freedom and to pour out our lives. We can actually expend effort and energy for the glory of God and good of others. So two purposes of the law or two ways to think of the proper use of the law for us this morning. The first is that it reveals our sin and the second that it takes us to Christ So let's first spend some time reflecting on how the law reveals our sin. So just a quick summary of where we have been in the book of Galatians so far. We have seen that the Jewish teaching of the day stated that favor and blessing and salvation comes to those who are righteous by keeping the law. So if you wanted favor and blessing from God, if you wanted God's grace, if you wanted a gift from God... You had to keep the law. You had to be righteous. You had to be worthy of that gift. Like a teenage son or daughter who a father is going to bestow a new car upon. They could bestow it on the responsible teenager who has shown themselves worthy of that gift or the irresponsible teenager who has shown themselves unworthy of that gift. Jewish teaching said, hey, we need to be like the responsible teenager by keeping the law. Then we will get the blessing and the favor and the grace of God. The law was the key to righteousness and life and favor and blessing. The promise of God, the plan of God, was ultimately fulfilled in the law. When God gave the law, here was the fullest extent of his plan and his purpose. And so if you wanted to belong to God, you had to keep the law. You had to follow the law. And then the false teachers that had entered into the church in Galatia were taking those teachings and they were tacking Jesus on. Or maybe we could say they were tacking those things onto Jesus. Yes, believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, believe that he came and he died and he was resurrected. But if you truly want to be righteous, you have to follow the law. And in contrast, the Apostle Paul in this letter over and over and over again says, no, the law cannot make you righteous. The law isn't the fulfillment of God's plan and purpose. Christ is. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. In Jesus, you are righteous. In Jesus, you have favor and blessing. In Jesus, you have salvation. 
And this has come to you not because you were the deserving teenager. This has come to you when you were undeserving. It's come to you as grace. So if this is all true, we're left with this question, why then the law? When Paul asks this question in verse 19, it's a legit question. Why then the law? If the law doesn't make us righteous, then what's it doing here? And it's to this question that he now turns his attention and begins to instruct us. And what we see in verse 19, we're told this, it was added because of transgressions. That's the first thing he tells us. Added, meaning it came after the promise. As we saw last week, it came after. It wasn't primary, it was secondary. The law has a secondary purpose. And it was added because of transgression. It was added because of sin. Now, Paul doesn't unpack what he means here. He just sort of states it and then moves on to his next point. So what what does that mean, added because of transgression? Well, we're fortunate because in the book of Romans, another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, he sort of unpacks this idea further. He helps us understand what it means that the law was added because of transgression. So I just want to give you some categories. I want to bullet point a few things and walk through a few things quickly. What we learn in the book of Romans. First, the law tells us what is good. Romans 7, 12 says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The, the law reflects what is good. It reflects the character of God, the nature of God. God is holy, God is righteous, God is true. And that is what the law is as well. It tells us what is true and good. And in doing this, it also defines sin for us. Romans 3.20 says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then Romans 7.7 7 says this, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, here's what's interesting in the book of Romans. At the beginning, if you've read the book of Romans, you know this. In the beginning, Paul makes this statement that like those who didn't have the law to instruct them still knew what was right and wrong. We have this innate sense in us of what is good and what is evil. But what the law does, it comes in and it clarifies that for us. It says, hey, you know that, that sense you have that you're doing something wrong? Hey, that's because you're violating the law of God. And here is what it means to violate the law of God. Here is what it means to actually sin. So it defines sin for us. So it defines what is holy and good, defines sin. Here's where it gets really interesting. It also provokes sin. Romans 7, verse 8 and then 13. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So here's what happens. When the law comes, and we're told this is sinful, the sin in our heart is provoked, and we start sinning. It's this principle that we recognize in life where you always want what you can't have. Isn't it interesting how you'll be in a room full of, I saw this as a teacher all the time, you'll be in a room full of students, And you'll say, hey guys, I don't want you to do X while I'm out of the room. And what will they do? X. You know, it might have been better not to say that because it might not have provoked them. But the moment we're told we can't have something, the moment we're told don't do this, the sin in our heart, the problem's not with the law, the problem's not with the rule. It's the sin in our heart that comes out and says, no, you're not going to tell me what to do. You don't get to define good and evil for me. I decide what I want to do. 
So what the law does is it draws sin out of us. It provokes, it shows us it's there, and it actually stirs it up to show us just how bad we are. And so it provokes sin. And finally, as the result of provoking sin, it creates spiritual death, or it reveals spiritual death. This is Romans 7, 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. The law shows us we're dead spiritually. The law shows us that we're enslaved to sin. So it reveals our condition. It shows us just exactly who we are. So why the law then? To show us the nature of our condition. To show us what is truly good and holy and righteous. And to show us just how big of a gap there is between what is holy and where we are. It shows us that there is goodness and there is righteousness and there is truth and there is justice and we're not it. We are far away from it. And this is why the law was given through intermediaries. So Paul drops this sort of line in here that the law was given through intermediaries. And and this is how it went down. God gave the law, told angels, and then angels gave it to Moses and then Moses gave it to the people. Why so many degrees of separation? To show just how far we are apart from God. When we're talking performance, when, when we're talking about our required behavior and what it means to walk holy before the Lord, there's this massive gap. And the fact that God gave the law through those intermediaries shows, those mediators shows just how far that gap is. So the law doesn't make us righteous. Its purpose is to show us that we aren't to show us that we don't deserve favor, we don't deserve blessing, we don't deserve salvation, and that we can't earn it. And yet, and yet, we want to perform. And yet, we still seek identity and worth and blessing and favor through trying to be the best version of ourselves. If I can just be this ideal me, then I'll get all of those things. All the while, the law The standard of the best version of yourself is saying this, not, hey, good job. You're getting there. You're doing it. It's like, no, you're failing. You're failing miserably. You're blowing it. You're not the ideal version of yourself. You're not righteous. You're not following the standard of good. And yet we still seek worth and identity and favor and blessing through our performance. And look, even in our best, even in our best, humanly speaking, we fall short. Like, like consider this. Think of your best effort at success in a good sense. Like, you should want to work hard and be successful at what you do. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But even when you give it your best effort to do it in the right way, what often comes alongside that? Pride, selfishness, workaholism, which is really idolatry, using other people. Like we, we can, the, the, the center of gravity never holds. We always slip and we fall into these sins, even when we set out to try to do it in the best sense possible. Think about this with relationships. Relationships are good. We should be in good, healthy relationships. And we may pursue that with all we are, but what ends up happening? Selfishness, pride, codependency, using other people sinning against other people, we fall short. Our best efforts at morality, we fall short. So look, the best version of yourself, humanly speaking, is utterly sinful. 
It's flawed. It's broken. It's not perfect. It's a wreck. And this is what the law reveals to us. Even in your best, the law is saying, hey, you're guilty. You're you're rebellious. You're you're not actually following the law. You're, You're following your own desires. And no matter how much we want to sort of emphasize the good, it doesn't minimize the sin that is there. So let me illustrate it this way. Uh, I baked some cookies. I'm, I, I like to bake. I've been watching a lot of uh, Great British Bake Off. So I baked some chocolate chip cookies for whoever would like some. I don't have a lot, but I have a few. Let me tell you about these cookies, why they're good. Special recipe right here. Instead of butter, I use my sweet Golden Doodle Ruse poo. Anybody want some? Oh, of course you would, Jeremiah, right? You you don't care. It's a cookie. (laughs) Okay, gross, right? But hey, look, there's still chocolate chips. There's still sugar in this. I mean, there's a lot of really good things in here. And if I I tell you all about that, do, do you still want one? Or, or how about this? I'm, I'm kidding. Actually, it's, it's not that. That's a little gross. Um, the, the actual special ingredient here is this mixture of arsenic and anthrax. Lots of good sugar. I mean, I use the top shelf chocolate chips. I mean, I found the best ingredients possible with that arsenic and, and anthrax. Anybody want some of these cookies? No. Why? Because it would kill you. <laughs> And that is the way we are. It doesn't matter if we focus on the good. The truth is, is we're still sinful. We're still broken. There is still death in us. There is still rottenness in us. And this is what the law reveals to us. And look, no amount, no system of morality, no amount of performance is going to undo that sin in your heart. It doesn't matter how much sugar and chocolate chips I add to those cookies. If there's anthrax and, and arsenic in them, they're still deadly. And it's the same with our performance. And playing the Jesus plus game, where, where we will just sort of tack Jesus on to our performance, where we will live by our own performance, but we'll just say, yeah, I still believe in Jesus. Like, look, that's not going to cut it either. That isn't, is what sets us free. And, and here's what ends up happening when you play that game. You end up saying, well, Jesus isn't working for me. But Jesus isn't the problem. It's your performance. Jesus hasn't failed you. Your performance is failing you. This is what happens when we misuse the law. The law is not a means of righteousness. The performance isn't our means of righteousness. It's a mean to expose sin, to show us how broken and hopeless we are so that we stop trying to use the law and our performance to gain worth and blessing and favor and go to what truly will bring those things. This is why the law isn't contrary to the promises of God as we see in verse 21. They're not, it's not contrary because it's not competing with the promise of God. It's not an alternate way to salvation. Rather, it points us to the true salvation. It works with promise. And here is our second point. The law takes us to Christ. 
Again, going back to verse 19. It, meaning the law, was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Here Paul says the law's role is temporary. It's not the fulfillment. It just has a place in time. It serves a purpose until something greater comes. And when we're honest about our sin, when we recognize that we are enslaved, helpless and hopeless, when we recognize we can't perfectly keep the law, we run to promise. And this is Paul's point in verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It imprisoned everything under sin so we would stop with our performance and go to faith and belief in the promise of God in Jesus Christ. And then Paul writes in verses 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So here's what Paul does. He creatively weaves redemptive history with personal history here. He says, in history, in the story of God's redemption, there was a time when Israel as a nation was governed by the law. And it was imprisoned under the law, not because the law is bad, but because of sin. And the law revealed their sin. That the law guided them to who God was and guided them to what righteousness is. And this is why Paul said the law was a guardian. A guardian in ancient Roman households was typically a slave who functioned as a supervisor for the kids. They weren't teachers. They didn't didn't formally teach the kids anything. But what they did is they they spent time. they, They sort of babysat, but it was more than that. And they made sure that the child was growing and developing as they ought to that they were following the rules that the father had laid down, that the will of the father was being accomplished in the child. And so the guardian was the one making sure the kid walked the proper path, managing their behavior, instructing them when they got out of line to bring them back, pointing them to what was good. Paul sort of unpacks this a little bit more in verses verses one and two of chapter four. It says that I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So an heir, a son, the one who was going to inherit everything, there was a time when this child had no more rights in the household than a slave. No authority, no freedom. Under the direction and authority of other people, must do what he is told. And this is what the law did. This is how the law functioned. Until the time set by the father. This is what is fascinating. What unlocked that child's movement from being under a guardian to being a son, fully inheriting his father's possessions and treasure and promise? Not his obedience. Not because he got to a certain point where he was responsible No, when the time that the father set had come, typically meaning when the age that the father sets. And this is the beautiful truth that Paul points to within redemptive history. This is how it plays out. Though they had been promised an inheritance, Israel was imprisoned under the law because of sin. It guided them into righteousness, but it showed them you lack righteousness. 
showed them they could not perform. It showed them they were dead in sin. It showed them that God's promises and his inheritance couldn't be earned by their performance. It showed them their need for rescue and grace and transformation. It showed them their need for new spiritual life. And this is what the prophets told them over and over again. Then the history-altering, universe-transforming moment happens. The moment that the Father had been setting in eternity past to happen comes about in history. Verses four and five, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. This is what God does in history, not in some mythical past, not in some imaginary world, but actually in history, God sends his son. What this means is God intends to save. God's not stingy with salvation. God's not holding back. He sends his son. He says, son, go fulfill the promise. He sends his son born of a woman, Jesus, God the son, becomes a man, puts on our humanity. This means that he stands with us. He is unified. He identifies us with us in our humanity. He takes on human frailty. He enters into our mess and our sin. He deals with our brokenness. He he deals with our conflict. He deals with our pain. He deals with our sickness. He becomes a man born under the law, He comes and he's a part of Israel. He submits himself to that good and holy standard. And here's the good news. Where we failed, he perfectly kept the law. He perfectly walked in obedience with the actions that he did, the attitudes, his thoughts, his affections. He perfectly performed in our place. He kept the law. He did it. He accomplished it. And then in a great act of love, he ransomed He laid down his life. He took the wrath of God that you and I deserved. The sin and the curse that was on us, the judgment that you and I rightfully deserve because we have broken God's holy law because we're rebellious. Jesus took that on himself. Jesus took that on himself to buy us out of slavery so that slaves could become sons. So that those who are imprisoned and locked in their performance could be set free. This is what Jesus does. This is what God sent Jesus to do. This is what Jesus did for Israel. No longer under the law, Israel. No no longer enslaved and imprisoned to sin and performance. This is why Jesus came. But Christ did this not only for the Jewish people, but for you and me. For, For people from every tribe and tongue and nation. You and I were enslaved to our sin. We were enslaved, as Paul says, to the elementary principles of this world. What does that mean? Well, simply put, it's the principles of human effort. The the sort of base drive that you and I have to earn, to strive, effort. We were enslaved to that. We were held captive under the law and its moral demands. The law served as a guardian to us, showing us that we lack righteousness, pointing us to what righteousness is, but showing us that we fall far short, that we're dead in sin, showing us that we cannot earn God's promise, we cannot keep the law, showing us that we need rescue and grace and transformation, showing us that we need new life. This is what the law does for us too. 
And in Christ, God pours out his grace on us. This is the good news of the gospel. The God pours out his grace on us in Jesus. In Jesus, we have rescue. In Jesus, we have redemption. In Jesus, we have righteousness. We have new life. For those who are in Christ, you're no longer a slave. You're no longer imprisoned. You are now a son. You are now in the family. And listen to what this means in verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As sons, as heirs, we have the spirit of God dwelling in us. And his spirit cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father. This is the good news for us. Whose spirit is actually crying out in us? The spirit of the son. Jesus' spirit. Here, Here is what happens when you are in Christ. This is the good news. The spirit of Christ renews you, brings new spiritual life in you. He dwells within you. And he causes your heart to cry out to God as Father, Abba, Daddy, Father. It's intimate. It's personal. The relationship that Jesus has with God the Father, he brings you and I into so that you and I have that intimacy. He tells his disciples this in the Gospel of John. He says, as the Father has loved me, I love you. And that if you are my disciple, the Father and I will come and we will dwell with you and we will love you. We are brought into this intimate, eternal relationship with God, between God and Jesus. That is how much we are loved. And the Spirit causes us to experience that. And you know what? You don't perform for that. God does not have you perform to enter into that relationship. He doesn't say, hey, if you're good enough, you can get in on this. No, he says, through my son, welcome. And so when we turn from our performance, when we turn from our sin, when we turn from trying to keep the law, when we let the law drive us to hopelessness and helplessness and take us to the promise, this is what we experience. Grace, salvation, righteousness, worth, You're loved as a son. You're loved as an heir. All the promises of God are yes and amen to you. God is your father and he loves you. And you are in intimate relationship with him. Look, I've used this illustration several times before, but I think it bears repeating. Like the gospel shows us two different rooms. It gives us a picture of a courtroom where we stand before God as judge. We stand before him guilty The law condemns us. The law says you have broken the commandments. But in that courtroom, Jesus Christ stands in our place and he pays our debt, pays our ransom so that God the Father looks at us and says, not guilty. Debt is paid. But it doesn't stop there. God the Father gets off his bench, takes off his robe, puts his arm around you and brings you into the family room. And so now you're in part of the family. You're sitting him, with him, not as your judge, but as your father. And he loves you and he's in relationship with you. Too many of you are still in the courtroom wondering what the verdict is. Or too many of you are in the courtroom trying to perform so that God would say not guilty. All the while, he says, through my son, that verdict is decided and you can come into this courtroom and know me as father or come out of this courtroom, come into this family room and know me as father. That's what the gospel does. Not our performance, not our law keeping, but this is what Jesus has accomplished for us. This is what happens when we are part of Christ. 
that is the good news for us. We don't earn this. We receive it. We don't earn and perform. We believe in what Jesus has done. We turn from our sin, turn from our performance, and fall on the mercy and grace of Christ. And here's an incredible thing about who we are when we have this. As Paul writes in chapter 3, verses 25 through 28, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Don't need that guardian anymore. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. All are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all sons. Here's the good news of this. And here's what Paul's getting at. So in ancient Greece, the son was the one who inherited The son is the one who had preferred status. The son is the one who got all the stuff from the father. But in Christ, we're all sons. We all receive the inheritance. What this means is, men, if you are in Christ, you are a son, and the inheritance is yours. Women, if you are in Christ, you are a son, and the full inheritance is yours. And it doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic status you have. It doesn't matter what position you have in life. This is the great humbling and leveling reality in the gospel. The law levels us all down to sinners. No one's better. No one's more righteous. We're all guilty. And then in Christ, we're all one. There's no value hierarchy in the church. We're all inheritors. We're all sons. We're all loved because of Jesus. So this whole status thing that the world plays has no place in the church. Jesus has eliminated that, and he's given us all the promise. That is good news for us, because that means that performance has no control over us. Performance has no say in the matter. Performance has nothing to do with your identity or your worth or your blessing or your favor. If you are baptized into Christ, you are all sons. Oh, it's a beautiful truth, church. And what this means for us, if there is no value hierarchy, if there's no hierarchy of worth or identity or blessing or favor or righteousness, then let us stop performing and acting like there is. Let us stop dividing over our performance. Let us stop saying, well, because I am more godly, I do or don't do this or can't do this or I won't spend time with this person. Let's not start to categorize each other based on who can perform and who can't. I'm not talking about not calling each other out on sin and discipling each other and loving each other and confronting each other when needed. I'm talking about the status we put on each other and the things that we cause each other to do to perform. And let's not pridefully compete for status. We don't need a platform or position to have worth and value in the church. Look, because I'm a pastor, that doesn't mean I have more value or worth or more inheritance or I'm loved by God more. I am just as much a son as you. If you just show up here on Sundays and don't say a word, you come, listen, and bow out. So we don't need platform and position to have worth and value. Oh, that the church would be countercultural. 
that we would stop with the performance, that we'd stop handing out these shiny tokens of worth and image and intelligence and influence and power and wealth and success. May that have no place in this church. That we wouldn't seek our identity and favor and worth in what we can do or what we don't do. That we wouldn't create preferred statuses, preferred genders, preferred race, preferred positions. Oh, that we'd be countercultural. Oh, that, that the church would find our identity and our worth and our righteousness in Jesus. That our hearts would rest in Him. That our hearts would be full of love for God and worship and affection, and that would set us free. That we would not expend energy trying to perform, but that we would pour out our lives to love one another. The back half of this book, we're going to get there in a couple weeks, is all about the implication of this, and it is love, serve, pour out your life for others. Walk in freedom so that you can serve and love. That's the good news of the gospel. When we're no longer performing for one another, we get to love one another. When I don't have to earn identity, all that I can do can be about other people. It can be for the glory of God because it doesn't matter. My status is secure. And this is the difference between living as one who is seeking identity, or maybe we could say this, as one who lives as an orphan and one who is a son. One who is insecure in their identity, one who has no sense of family or home, and one who knows who they are one who knows that they belong to a family and their father loves them. So are you living as an orphan or as a son? See, orphans, because of their insecurity, they're driven to be accepted. And and, and I'm not, let me be clear here. I'm not trying to disparage orphans here. I'm I'm not trying to look down on someone who is in that state. But as a way of analogy, if that insecurity lives in your heart, man, you're driven to be accepted. But those who know they're a part of the family know they have acceptance. If we're unsure of whether or not we're in a family, if we have this orphan mindset, well, we'll just strive and try to do good enough and be good enough so people will love us and accept us. But sons, hey, they work hard and they know they're loved. And so if they fail, they confess and they keep working. They confess and they run to their father. They confess and they keep loving. They keep serving. That's the beauty of being set free. And so church, can we stop with the performance? Can we stop living as if we need to earn? Can we stop living as if we're uncertain of our identity? As if we're homeless? As if God doesn't love us in Jesus? Can we let the law do its proper work? Can we let the law bring us to an end of ourselves so we stop trying to perform? Can can we take seriously our sin so we go to Jesus? Can we take seriously our sin so we fall on the grace and mercy of Jesus, knowing that only he can set us free? Can we let the law do its proper work so that we can live in the good of the promise, so that we can live to glorify God and love others? Church, that is what the book of Galatians holds out for us. Oh, the law has purpose. The law has place. But it's temporary. It's for a time. What God really has for you, the eternal thing God has for you, is found in Jesus Christ. Let's live there. Amen?